and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we focus on broadband expansion efforts in the United States, including how new 5G technology offers more choices for personal use. We'll also delve into the implications of new tech regulations aimed at stopping tech censorship. Joining us to discuss all of this is Katie McAuliffe. Katie McAuliffe is Director of Federal Policy at Americans for Tax Reform and Executive Director of Digital Liberty. Her research and advocacy efforts focus on telecom and technology issues such as net neutrality, privacy, competition, internet taxes, future of work, broadband, and more. Her commentary has been published in The Hill, U.S. News and World Report, Forbes, and townhall.com. In addition to appearing on one American News Network and Real News on the Blaze TV Network. She frequently speaks on panels in D.C. and at conferences around the U.S. Katie, it is such a pleasure to have you on She Thinks today. Thanks so much for having me. And I think you work in such a fascinating area, the tech area. You mentioned net neutrality in your in your bio, but also this important aspect of broadband. There is a lot of discussion about broadband. I think COVID has brought up even more conversations since so many people were working and going to school from their homes. The question of whether or not rural America has the same access as people who live in cities. So this has become an important conversation. Where are we with broadband expansion? Expansion, and what has the Biden administration proposed? Yeah, broadband expansion is a huge topic, closing the digital divide, making sure everyone has access, and really what's the best way to do that. Um, you know, the Biden administration came out with a plan of $100 billion. That's actually been negotiated down to about $65 billion because if you look at a lot of the money that already came through um, during the Trump administration, we're, we're getting close to like very high numbers. There's an NTIA program out right now dispersing a couple hundred million. There are a few other programs in the work. The FCC is already pushing out um, rural development on broadband. We've got a few other programs that work with getting uh, students who don't have connections. There's already money being pushed out for that, and that all started in May. We've also got the emergency broadband benefits which is a voucher program, which is very interesting because, you know, that works more along the lines of folks who've already shown that they're in need of assistance, like something like SNAP. And uh, there's already been 1 million households who have applied for that and who are um, eligible to receive that emergency broadband benefit. And one of the things we're going to end up looking at going forward is how do we want to help people access the Internet? Is it best to give people some kind of voucher program where they can decide what service they want? Do they want wireline? Do they want wireless? Do they want satellite? What kind of broadband serves them best? Or should it be directed by the government that they have networks run by their local government or a specific type of broadband? And that's really what the debate's about right now. And so it's almost thinking about broadband as a utility like you would have um, for electricity, for example. Do you think that broadband should be regulated as a utility? Oh, no, that's a definite no. Um, so, you know, one of those talking about broadband as a utility is actually what net neutrality turned into. And the real problem with that is that um, you get into rate regulation and governments deciding what the cost of broadband should be. And we deal with that in electricity. Um, we haven't seen any kind of innovation in the electrical grid, but we've seen so much innovation in broadband. And I was listening to an interesting story um, through the Wall Street Journal 
And they were talking about how Germany, even though they are, you know, you think of them as being very forward moving because of those net neutrality utility style regulations that were put in place in 2015 through the European Union, Germany's providers, you know, like Deutsche Telekom, haven't wanted to invest in their networks. So they actually have very poor connectivity, even in Berlin. And so they are looking at putting subsidies out in Germany for leapfrogging fiber and actually going to satellite, going to 5G and giving people the option to use those instead of fiber because they think they missed the boat on fiber because of those regulations that kept their networks from investing. I mean, meanwhile, in the U.S., we've been investing nearly $80 billion a year because we don't have those utility-style regulations on our networks. And so for those who live in rural areas and say broadband, I still have access to it in my area, how quickly are you seeing internet companies try to put out the infrastructure that's needed to be able to carry fast access to the internet? You know, it takes a lot of time to do that. And it really depends on, um, depends on the technology. And that's one of the important things, you know, when the Biden plan came out, they said they wanted symmetrical speeds of 100 upload, 100 download. And what that really means is that it has to be fiber. But when you're dealing with rural areas, extreme remote areas, areas, very mountainous regions, there are other technologies that they might not be 100 up, 100 down, but maybe they can do 100 up and, or sorry, uh, 100 down and 20 up. So 20 upload, 100 download, but they're, so, but they're not fiber. So that could be something like a, um, a wireless, fixed wireless, and a lot of rural areas use fixed wireless connections. Uh, the WISP Association has been doing a lot of work to raise awareness of how those small providers have been really connecting rural America. Another thing to look at is satellite broadband. Uh, with the launch of Starlink and we're seeing Project Kuiper come online, you know, those are offering very high speeds, speeds that we really haven't seen before for satellite. And those might be a lot better options for rural areas. And so what should people think about when they hear the Biden administration propose a massive infrastructure bill that, of course, includes broadband technology and and trying to increase access, especially in rural areas? Is the moral of the story that enough federal funding has already gone to this and we need to let the companies compete with each other? Is that the moral of the story? I think uh, the moral of the story is that there does need to be, you know, this is government steps in when the free market can't solve the problem. And we do have a digital divide and that, that's agreed upon. So what is the most efficient way to do this? And the most efficient way is choice and allowing Americans to choose what service is best for them. So is it 5G? Would a mobile connection be the best thing? Uh, would a satellite connection be the best thing? Would um, would a wireless, a fixed wireless network, would that be the right thing? Just getting a jet pack so that you can connect to 5G from your home. A lot of folks do that for international travel. You know, there are lots of options out there and requiring fiber might not be the most efficient or the fastest one. And it looks like we're getting some agreement in the Senate to kind of um, talk about what really means an unserved area to really focus on those FCC broadband maps that show what areas are completely unserved. And um, those bills are coming from um, Cornyn and Manchin and Collins and Rosen in the Senate. And uh, those do show some promise at bipartisan agreement. 
And I want to talk a little bit about 5G technology, which you just mentioned there. There was a lot of movement in the FCC under the Trump administration on trying to um, push out their 5G technology. Are you finding that a lot of people are opting for that and that we are seeing the expansion of that um, being productive and successful for a lot of people who use it? Yeah, 5G is really going to revolutionize the way everything is done. I mean, this is really, you know, how we, the mobile communication. So when you think, when I say fixed wireless, I'm talking about a a wireless station that is just for your home. But when we talk about mobile, we're talking about being in our cars and moving at very high speeds using our cell phones and being able to connect to the internet and do all kinds of things. And we can do that now, but the level that that's going to change to, and a lot of this is because under, you know, the um, the Trump administration's uh, Federal Communications Commission led by Ajit Pai, there were multiple spectrum auctions, and that got a lot more spectrum into the hands of wireless carriers, and um, also unlicensed spectrum. Unlicensed spectrum would be things like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. You know, but getting that spectrum out to industry so that they can develop it and deploy those networks, we're going to see big changes in the next couple of years. And one of the less focused on stories during COVID to me has been how the Internet didn't crash during COVID and that people, for the most part, were able to work from home, do school from home. Of course, there are yes. some exceptions to that. Were you concerned when we entered COVID that there may not be enough bandwidth for the entire country working in this way? You know, that was a question, right? At the very beginning, are we really going to be able to do everything from home? Um, Are we going to be able to flip like this? Because, you know, retail or home internet is very different from enterprise or at the office internet. So uh, looking at those kind of bandwidth, and we found it worked really well. And that's because the infrastructure here, there's been tons of investment by private companies, like I said, between 74 and $80 billion per year uh, into these networks so that when we all shifted to home broadband, they were able to update their protocols. They were able to absorb that increase in what I was talking before about upload speeds. So things like video. Um, I mean, the thing that we talk about that has the most bandwidth um, uptake from home and upload speeds is, you know, video games. But we all moved to video conferencing, schooling at home. And really, we found that what was out here, what most Americans had in terms of connectivity to the Internet via Wi-Fi, via 5G, and uh, via wired connections was definitely adequate. And I want to change topics just a little bit, still staying on big tech, but talking about the area that a lot of people are concerned about, and that is the power of big tech, the censorship of big tech, and the efforts by many people to try to break up the big tech bandwagon. Um, Antitrust legislation is used to do that. First of all, to start this part of the conversation, can you give us an overview of what the antitrust debate really is about? What does it mean when we refer to antitrust? Yeah, so this debate is really interesting and complicated. Um, but when we talk about antitrust, you know, one of the most important things to remember is up until the 70s, antitrust was very politicized. And it was basically like companies that whoever was in power at the time, whichever administration was in power at the time, Whoever they favored really got the most power, they, um, they had the most influence, and they could kind of skirt the law. Um, after the 70s, and uh, Judge Robert Bork 
uh, brought forward the idea of the consumer welfare standard. And instead of looking at what's good for companies, what's best for companies and their political allies, we look at is the consumer better off by whatever it is these companies are doing. And that's what's really important to remember. So that's what our law does right now. So what I would say is this, like, this feeling towards, quote, unquote, big tech is that we do have antitrust laws in place, and a lot of that stuff is playing out right now, right? There are cases from the states and from the federal government, from the Department of Justice, uh, various attorneys general. They're looking into the tech companies to see whether they violated antitrust law and whether they violated the consumer welfare standards. And one of the things that I tell people a lot is just because we're having this issue and these companies are being investigated doesn't mean the law has to change. What it does mean is that the law is working. So when we catch somebody doing a bad thing, it means that the law caught them doing a bad thing. So what we need to do right now is kind of let this stuff play out because a lot of this is being used as a way to change antitrust law to give who's ever in power kind of more control over their uh, their corporate allies, if you will. And before we continue the conversation, I'd like to take a moment to highlight IWS Champion Women Profile Series, which focuses on women across the country and world that are accomplishing amazing things. The media too often ignores their stories, but we don't. We celebrate them and bring their stories directly to you. Our current profile is Representative Claudia Tenney from New York's 22nd Congressional District. To check out her story, do go to IWF.org to see why she's this week's champion woman. And I want to pick up back up on what you just said, Katie, on the power angle. Um, what I find is interesting about this whole discussion of what we should do about big tech is that both liberals and conservatives seem to want, or at least a good chunk of them, want to have more government intervention. Now, for different purposes, um, but they have an, an vested interest, it seems, in government providing more regulations. Um what do you say to adding more government into this discussion, adding more regulations? You just mentioned that the, when it comes to antitrust laws, it means the laws are working. Um, when we are looking into companies to see if they broke that law, what do you make, though, of this push to have government regulate the companies more? Yeah, this is I mean, you know, it's a tough it's a tough space because what I really think should be happening is I think we should be examining our privacy laws. And I think if we looked at our privacy laws and we looked at how data was being used and we gave individuals more power over our data, gave individuals more data ownership within the market. Because right now, when you think about it, you go online, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. If, if the product is free, well, then you're the product. So I think if we had that market power, if individuals had more market power in the system, then uh, we wouldn't need all this talk about government intervention. So that's actually where I think government should be focusing is where is the market failure? And I think the market failure is that users, individuals using the internet and products on the internet don't have any power over the use of their data. Um, so I think if we actually looked at that, if we looked at privacy, we might be getting at the real problem. But what we're looking at, again, is antitrust because, you know, if you change the law, there's a little bit of regulatory capture that's good for companies that are already big. They're like, yeah, well, this regulation I can deal with, smaller companies can't. You know, some of that goes on. There's also some use on the political side to be able to sort of capture these companies and make them your allies or not. 
And one of the thoughts I've had on this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the important areas is to make sure that there can still be competition in big tech, that there is still a space for startups to pop up so that people have options about what they use, because that is a a great way to make big companies customer focused instead of just focused on the data, for example, that they can sell. Do we have a system right now where startups are still able to be viable in this marketplace? Yeah, you know, startups are viable. And one of the options that startups look at is whether they can be bought out or not. And that is a positive part of the market. And that's not just in the tech industry. That's across all industries. A lot of startups look at what is going to be their exit strategy. Are they going to go for the initial public offering? Are they going to stay private? Or are they going to sell? You know, those are a few of the options that are out there. And the more strategies they have to become profitable and successful, so the more avenues that are available to them, the better. So if we limit that ability of startups to perhaps be acquired, uh, if we limit that ability too much, then we cut off the ability of our economy to keep churning out some of these innovative and new technologies. And I think one of the things that we have and that we look at when we go through merger review is, you know, whether this merger is going to be good or not for consumers. Is it and not is it going to be good for competitors? But is it going to be good for the people who use the products? And I think that's the really the importance of the emphasis there. And final question for you, what would you say to people listening to this podcast that are concerned about their privacy, whether that's through Amazon, whether that's through Facebook, whether that's through Google searches, we all know that um, whatever we search for online, we get ads for it and that pops up and, and that's so much to be expected. But how can people protect themselves? And for example, have you taken any personal steps to try to protect your privacy online? So as far as privacy online goes, quite frankly, Facebook has done a pretty good job of offering privacy checkups. Um, I'm going to go ahead and admit that I don't really do it myself. I do update my privacy standards for the different things that I use to make it not public and not publicly accessible. But I do understand that as an exchange for the products that I'm using on the Internet, So I'm using Facebook, therefore they're getting my data while I'm using Facebook. That's kind of an equal exchange, sort of like you go to a sandwich counter and you give them money and you get a sandwich. It's not money, it's data. I'm using data in the exchange. So I look at that as, you know, kind of something that I've accepted in the daily routine. There are plenty of things that you can do. You can change your browser to something like DuckDuckGo. Um, You can change your email client to something like ProtonMail that are very, very privacy, um, privacy sensitive. And those are options, but they don't really, data greases the wheels of the internet. And that's why we look at, you know, a a Chinese internet, a Russian internet, a Brazilian internet, a U.S. internet as being a problem when we talk about kind of different internets around the world or when we talk about different states trying to regulate the internet, like California's tried to regulate the internet. It sort of breaks it up. And data is what makes the internet really work in that exchange of information. So we do need to think about ways to protect ourselves, but also understand that there's kind of this give and take. Um, I still think the best place for government to work is to look at some way to give us control over our data, to give us that privacy and some kind of um, more direct exchange. But we'll wait to see how that actually plays out. 
Yeah, there's so much that is evolving in big tech and in the tech sphere. And we are very thankful that people that are as smart as you are working on it. Katie McAuliffe with ATR, we thank you so much for joining us and, and coming on She Thinks today. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for joining us. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. And investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. Please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That is iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode and let your friends know where they can find more She Thinks episodes. From all of us here at Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.